Hey there. Welcome to another episode of The Carpenter Shop, a limited edition podcast presented by War Starts at Midnight. I'm Chris Gallagher. I'm Hunter Cates. And I'm Jacob Graves. Once a month, we take a deep dive into director John Carpenter's colossal canon. Sometimes we discuss a film we already know and love. And other times we discover a gem for the very first time. Guys, what is on the docket today? We're reviewing the final chapter of Carpenter's Apocalypse Trilogy, In the Mouth of Madness. Do we love Craft Carpenter's horrifying homage to Howard Phillips? Cthulhu? Who? Or is the sight of Sam Neill struggling against slimy mutant monsters from space just too much silly to stomach? Plus, I've got a recap of the latest box office battle in the Midnight Warrior Fantasy Movie League. And we've each got something you should definitely check out in Really Rad Recommendations. But first... Hey guys, um, I've been doing some research. Oh, really? Yes, and I don't know if you guys know this, but John Carpenter supposedly directed a student film a long time ago that one of us would find very, very interesting. I'm listening. Okay, so it's called Gorgo versus Godzilla. <gasps> I recognize one of those uh, names. Uh, I, I did not know that Gorgo was the British knockoff of Godzilla, but apparently back in film school, John Carpenter directed this film and is now so ashamed of it that it will never see the light of day. Until he dies and I break into his home and find it somewhere. Gorgo versus Godzilla. Here's the thing. Gorgo versus Godzilla is straight out of fanfic. Like that's we have been pondering this. Clearly, John Carpenter was pondering since 1969. But I love this. I knew he was a fan of Godzilla and giant monster movies, but I didn't know that this existed. I don't care how bad it is. I have to see it. If 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 you're gonna break in and steal it, why wait until he's dead? Ex- well, I mean, out of respect. Or maybe we, you know, we lure him in with our trusting podcast, and then he says, "Hey, friends, I don't show this to anyone, but you guys, you guys, I'm going to show Gorgo and Godzilla and versus I, Godzilla." And me. I guarantee you, would wind up on the just for Johnny's mommy dot 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 and Hunter. And that's how <laughs> that's how we'd wind up ranking and, this and Hunter, <laughs> yeah, and Hunter. <laughs> But uh, no, that's incredible that he did this. And it kind of makes me wonder why he uh, didn't do an actual giant monster movie or hasn't done a giant monster movie. Yeah, but you also wonder why he's never done a Western. Because, yeah, he's a big Western buff. Yeah, and he he uses a lot of Western motifs, but he's never made a straight up Western. Well, okay, then let's throw that question out there is, would Escape from New York be a Western, just not in the West? I mean, because that was kind of what was going on at that point in time in film. Uh, I don't, I don't know. I mean, because it's, it's really heavy on the apocalyptic side of things, which is its own genre itself. But, but it does have that kind of small town, like not small town, but law and order trying to, to rule yourself without any outside control gang leading it. It feels a little bit like it, but not as much as Big Trouble in Little China feels like a Western. So then to that point, maybe John Carpenter hasn't made a direct Western. He's just made Western S films. So maybe he's likewise made a giant monster movie, uh, which is a film. I don't know if you guys have seen it. It's called Halloween. Uh, I actually have not. Are we going to bring this up every week until Halloween? <laughs> so maybe that was his his answer to the giant monster film is Halloween. Or maybe, Hunter, what if it was the monsters in the movie that we are discussing today in The Mouth of Madness? You know what, Chris? You might be right. So I'm really looking forward to this. So let's dive right in. Do you want to know the problem with places like this? With religion in general? It's never known how to convey the anatomy of horror. Religion seeks discipline through fear, yet doesn't understand the true nature of creation. 
No one's ever believed it enough to make it real. The same cannot be said of my work. <laughs> Your books aren't real. <laughs> but they've sold over a billion copies. I've been translated into 18 languages. More people believe in my work than believe in the Bible. You got a point? <laughs> I think you know it. Today we conclude a triptych of reviews that explore a group of films that John Carpenter has dubbed the Apocalypse Trilogy. Now, it could be argued that all of John Carpenter's films are connected through a series of recurring themes that make up the director's basic oeuvre, but please don't start labeling his movies part of a single John Carpenter cinematic universe. If anything, the master's pictures exist in a cinematic multiverse. Even when he explicitly draws connections between his work, as he did with the Apocalypse Trilogy, each film lives or dies on its own merits. Which brings us to today's film, In the Mouth of Madness. Nothing found in The Thing or Prince of Darkness can prepare you for the Lovecraftian metacinematic detective story found in this film's surprisingly tight 95-minute runtime. Sam Neill plays John Trent, a corporate sleuth for hire who specializes in investigating dubious insurance claims. When the preeminent horror author Sutter Kane goes missing on the eve of his latest book release, Trent is hired to track down the Stephen King stand-in. And from there, everything goes bananas. Now, I'll be honest, this is a film that I had never even heard of before Hunter brought it to my attention late last year. And while I was excited about the prospect of another film tangentially related to The Thing, my enthusiasm was stifled when I saw it scored a meager 51% on Rotten Tomatoes. But then again, The Thing was not much of a critical darling upon its release in 82. So I checked it out, and I am delighted to report that this is an unequivocal masterpiece. So guys, I'm curious. Who's crazy here? Me or the critics? And remember, reality is just what we tell each other it is. Sane and insane could easily switch places if the insane were to become the majority. Well, Chris, the only correct answer on any plane of existence is that you are crazy. However, regarding this film, I'm not going to go as far as you are as saying it's an unequivocal masterpiece, but I will say that this is some really fantastic Lovecraftian love story. And, and so I say Lovecraftian love story very deliberately because this is clearly John Carpenter taking a deep dive into an H.P. Lovecraft-style story, and he's clearly very comfortable in the setting, yeah. and it shows in the film. I, I don't know why you don't think this is a masterpiece, Hunter, because this, is, this one completely knocked my socks off. I Just from the title, I was like, this doesn't sound like something that's going to appeal to me at all. And just like with the second installment in the Apocalypse trilogy, Prince of Darkness, I thought the ideas in this movie were absolutely great. I, I didn't expect a movie. I, I expected like a, a slasher or like a, you know, it's it had madness in the title. So maybe it was addressing, you know, somebody losing their mind in a way it was, but it was much, much bigger than that. I, I thought it was great. Yeah. I, I mean, you guys know how I feel about this. Uh, I, I really loved it. I was utterly shocked. I mean, and I didn't do too much research going in. Um, and, you know, I, I think honestly, I was and maybe it's just my perception of I really haven't seen anything. I don't think I've seen any 90s Carpenter um, because I know there's a bit of a wishy-washy like people. Some people will will tell you that he never made anything great past the 80s. Um, so I was sort of expecting we were going to go from the thing, which is brilliant and great to Prince of Darkness, which is like, you know, OK, to In the Mouth of Madness, which is maybe just a mess. And so I was really surprised 
especially coming off of Prince of Darkness, which kind of basically met my expectations, maybe maybe exceeded it a little bit in places. But, you know, within the first five minutes, I was just I was fully wrapped in the story. Um, I was just really enjoying what he was doing and the, the twists and turns that it takes. And the, this is a movie that I really wanted to actually revisit, um, before to, to watch a second time before, uh, discussing it here. I didn't have the time to, I got about halfway through a second time and it just in that, like it really, really rewards the revisit because of the way he's playing with meta cinema and just meta the meta nature of story of, of this postmodern thing or whatever you want to. Um, yeah. Honestly, where you're going with this is the way to describe it is whatever the hell's going on yeah, here. What, and that's, and that's part of its charm is attempting to describe and attempting to describe what we like about it is almost moot. You, you just need to watch it and you either accept it or you don't. That's, and that's very, that's very true. Like I, I understand why it's not everyone's cup of tea. Um, but it is so like, it's so energetic. It's so, it knows exactly what movie it is. Um, Sam Neill is very good with the exception of, I don't know if I buy Sam Neill and wearing a blazer and cowboy boots. I don't know how you guys <laughs> feel about this. Yeah. Was he an American in this? He was. And that, that was actually another thing. His, his accent was a little loose. Right. Yeah. That's, but I, I still like I liked him playing what was essentially the lead in a noir is what it felt for most of it. He's the detective. Certainly. He's going around. He's investigating things. That was that was really good. And the escalation of of craziness as the film went on was just they he nailed it. Carpenter nailed it. I, I've been telling everybody I meet, you have to go and watch this movie. You have to go and watch this movie because that's all I've wanted to talk about since the minute it went off. I will say this, however, and this isn't me dissing the film, but I will say this is it came out in 1995, um, two years after Jurassic Park, the same year for context as Batman Forever. To me, it still seems like a late 80s movie, oh, which no, isn't I, a, which I, isn't a, uh, which isn't me insulting. It just seems like a late 80s I movie. I disagree. Other than like the practical effects, which I absolutely love, that rubber door is fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, there is there is a bit of ILM going on here yeah. with like the car flying and and that sort of thing. Um, but I, no, I disagree. And I think it looks to your point from the last episode about Prince of Darkness. I think this movie looks really great and lush and, and beautiful. Um, also quick, quick little sidebar. You mentioned Batman forever. Uh, the guy that sort of runs the ward in the beginning and end of this, this film, um, did you recognize him? And do you know where you recognized him? Actually, I recognized him from Scrooged cause he oh. played, he played, uh, Preston, uh, uh, who was Bill Murray's enemy. That is that is not where I recognized him. He plays the scientist that uh, Poison Ivy works for in Batman and Robin. So that that's, guy. That's, that guy. That, that's funny because I, I pictured him as uh, if I were dreamcasting a live action uh, Muppets movie, he would be Beaker. <laughs> that could work. But but he has basically the same hair in both of these movies. But to get back on topic, um, if there is nothing else that I haven't seen from Carpenter that is exceptional, I think the this endeavor that we were setting out on is totally worth it for discovering and finally seeing this film. I love this movie. All right. Here's a here's a probably the primary route to go down with this is the HP Lovecraft homage. At what point in time watching this film did you guys pick up on that? So for me, it was when Or did it? Or didn't it? 
I don't know. They were in the red room, and Sutter Kane started talking about the old ones behind the door. I mean, that's kind of a, a pretty obvious Lovecraftian thing. Yeah, exactly. If it, that was me, too. And that was kind of astounding to me, because Chris and I actually talked about this on another occasion, is I didn't—that's pretty much the movie's almost over at that point. I didn't pick up on the Lovecraft thing until then, either. I don't, I don't know how you guys—I mean, like, from like from the tentacles, it was sort of like—it was more like— feels like mm-hmm. not feels like homage but yeah. feels like but then you get you get plenty of in those flashes and um even in i think some of the book covers you get things that look very uh cthulhu lovecraft appropriate apparently all those book titles that you see are uh not references variants yeah. Yeah. yeah i was too distracted by him being a stephen king type than thinking that he was a lovecraft type so i was like this must be some stephen king stuff i haven't read like I, I didn't tie it in there, but I, I knew something was going on. I just thought it was Stephen King. I got a little bit from In the Mouth of Madness as compared to the H.P. Lovecraft In the Mountains of Madness. Right. But this is something that, uh, like I said, Chris and I talked about, is the film the from the from the tentacled monsters and, and the approach, it felt very much like a 80s horror film, which just goes to show how deep, pun intended, or how far, pun intended, Lovecraft's tentacles go into into pop culture and horror is that I didn't catch that reference because I was thinking it was just a reference to something that Lovecraft influenced that I had seen before. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we've talked about and I think we've talked about this before is we recognize the influence before we recognize the originator. Sometimes, yeah. And and I mean honestly, we probably do that with with Carpenter as well with the the mini because mm-hmm. I I think he's you know he's the type of director that um, has never been like the blockbuster director. He's had sort of his ebbs and flows in his career, but there's also a lot of directors. I think part of the reason why, um, cause a- after we, or after I, I saw this, I started doing a little research and was coming across, like there's, there's a really good, I'll link to it in the show notes, New York times article, um, sort of about reassessing in the mouth of madness and how it's probably Carpenter's last great masterpiece. Um, and, um, it's an interview with him and his wife, whose name escapes me now, King. I forget her first name. Um, his his producer on on a lot of his films, um, but I I think maybe the reason because it seems like a lot of John Carpenter work that was relegated to just like ah it was schlock or a barf bag movie like um, uh, Ebert said of the thing has as directors come into their own who appreciated his films and start to kind of borrow from him, then his films get a new life and become. Um, you know, people become more aware of them as a result of like, oh, that was great. Where did that come from? Oh, that actually came from John, John Carpenter. Exactly. Um, but what's interesting is you said that you started doing research uh, after seeing this film. I did as well, except I didn't do really research on this film or John Carpenter. Once again, I dive more into H.P. Lovecraft. And so that's what I appreciate about this is less as a as a part of Carpenter's oeuvre and more mm. as an extension of Lovecraft's mythology. There are other other examples of this, but what I love about Lovecraft is the idea that he created he created a universe essentially that other 
authors, other filmmakers, other artists have wanted to tap into. Yeah. And so this is very much another chapter in the Lovecraft universe. Well, and I, I will be perfectly frank. I am a I, novice is probably even the wrong word on, on Lovecraft. I am only aware of the things that reference him and, and the people who are fans of him, like someone like Guillermo del Toro. Or basically everyone. I mean, it's 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 truly striking. Even Stephen King said he is the most influential horror writer of the 20th century, and I'm even sure that might be that might not even be giving him due credit. But Hunter, you had said something to me um, earlier uh, where you had said something to the effect of it's it's more the world that he builds and the story he tells. Um, we like correct, yeah. The uh, within referencing Lovecraft is. Not to say that, and not to say that he's a bad author by any stretch of the imagination, but his true contribution to the culture is the universes that he creates, mm -hmm. and that is referenced in *In the Mouth of Madness* because the idea that essentially there there is no god, we live in a cold, callous universe. This is his cosmic horror mythology, and that there are ancient creatures, the elder ones, who aren't evil because they have no morality, but they'll destroy humanity just casually the same way we'll destroy ants because we're so insignificant to them. That's this, that's Lovecrafting mythology in a nutshell, and we see that very explicitly displayed here. And if if you like Lovecraftian, uh, the Lovecraftian mythos, uh, play any modern board game because every single horror game is Lovecraftian themed these days. And just uh, as I think Carpenter's influence is becoming more and more evident in things like uh, Stranger Things and some other uh, more modern horror movies. Uh, Lovecraft's influences is maybe at a at a peak right now, especially in that community. So to get back to John Carpenter, I, I feel like I know you guys' answers, but I'd like you guys to to say them. Is this a is this John Carpenter's masterpiece, or is this John Carpenter's a uh, great H.P. Lovecraft masterpiece? You know what I mean? Is he just is he just making something really qualified in someone else's? No, I, I two things. One, I think it's John Carpenter's masterpiece. Um, and and part of that is the fact that he's um, and I guess the the second thing that I was going to get to is he he's not the author of this script unlike Prince of Darkness, um, Deluca I forget I forget the uh, the screenwriter's name off the top of my head, um, but it you know it came from a uh, a writer I think the script was actually around in the eighties and Carpenter was interested and then finally got it made uh, mid nineties to uh, with, with a lot of like trouble with new line from what I understand. Um, but I think because he's melding it, you know, it's not just Lovecraft. He's got the detective thing going on. He's got horror elements that are and aren't Lovecraft going on. He's got, he's much like he does with a lot of his stuff. Like, like we were talking earlier with the way that he uses a Western and, and picks out pieces. I think he's doing that again here where it definitely has, Lovecraft strokes and it's probably the the biggest uh influence on this film but there's a lot of other stuff too that isn't purely at least what I've seen like like I said I don't know mm -hmm. his work but what I've seen reflected from fans of his work right. in the past I, I would definitely say it's Carpenter's film it, I'm not saying it's his masterpiece like uh it's his one great film but the mat it is a masterpiece and it is his is is what I would say about it it plays in that universe but when you create that strong of a universe, other people are going to do things there. Just because you have a movie that features elves and dwarves doesn't mean it can't be great because Tolkien exists. You play in the same realm, 
but it's 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 Carpenter's film. Yeah, and and to answer my own question, I actually think the answer's both because if you're going to criticize a writer or a filmmaker for making something look crafty, and then you're basically going to be criticizing a whole swath of sci-fi and horror from the 20th century. What if you're Roger Ebert, who criticizes him for making something that's not quite Stephen King enough? You know, the, the thing about Roger Ebert, without getting a Roger Ebert tangent, but he didn't really like the Coens either, and so there are some just quintessential filmmakers that he just didn't have it. He didn't, had, didn't he had a real beef with John Carpenter, except for Ghosts of Mars. <laughs> And we'll get to that. I kind of feel like I feel like on that, except he gave Halloween four stars, and I think it's on his great movies. Yeah, Halloween, which Jacob Graves has not seen. Oh my (laughs) god! (laughs) But uh, this joke is going to be like a rotting pumpkin on the uh, by the time it comes in a few months. Yeah, when when Halloween happens, it's just going to get rescheduled to Halloween 2018, so it has to go even longer for the 40th anniversary. Uh, But anyway, so 22nd anniversary of this picture. Why do you think it it just kind of faded into oblivion? I I have a slight answer to that, and that is New Line. New Line apparently sort of just swept this movie on the rug. They released it in Italy before it came out in America. Um, If you look at – actually, if you look at John Carpenter's filmography, sometimes it's listed as a 94 film, sometimes a 95. It came out in Italy in 94, America in 95. But then he also released uh, Village of the Damned in 95. So hmm. it it was sort of just like, oh, we have this thing. We made it. We've got to do something with it. Apparently, there was a lot of sort of not necessarily infighting, but, um, you know, they they allowed them to make the movie they wanted to make, but they then didn't care about it once it was made. Yeah, I definitely had the feeling that no executives were harmed in the making of this film. Like no, no executive stuck his his nose into the into the set at all, because it's very clearly a film with some big ideas that probably wouldn't wouldn't play if a a very um uh, high profile director didn't have the vision right and when one of those i'm not necessarily sure i'm going to call it an idea but just one of those things that just kind of creeps into your mind and you just remember is that old guy on the bicycle who i thought oh, was john man. carpenter at first I, I well i think it's the it was kid, that kid right? like and and you should never ever trust a geriatric youngster on a bicycle just don't no, do I, I feel like I knew that anyway, but I'm glad that we articulated it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that and and that's a like I I love the there's just something so creepy about the the makeup that and that you know it's really throughout this entire film um, he's still doing physical effects he's still doing heavy makeup and stuff and it feels like at times it can feel a little bit like the miniature of Happy Gilmore's grandmother. Um, right, the, the innkeeper. Except um, I love I, that. I, even though well, it's even though it's straight out of the eighties, I love that. Well, stuff. That, that's yes. what like it's a little campy, but it still really works for me. And um, and I I really appreciate it. I appreciate that he's going whole hog. That door, that moving door, feels very video dromy. Um, it was. I mean, this is this is a real serious hidden gem. I think. Look, once once they get to Hobbs End, everything in there feels surreal in the best way. Even that painting that that's different every time they look at it and moved one time when we looked at it yeah. was I w- it was so creepy I didn't even want to lay eyes on it when the shot was on it okay so we talked about why this movie didn't do well when it was released I don't really feel like it's taken on cult status either why do you guys think that's the case I I think maybe it just needs time and time. A, and a forum like perhaps the carpenter shop <laughs> like I mean honestly if if this show does nothing else but get people to see this movie 
Um, I think we've done our job. This is that that's, that's what I'm saying here is like, you have to, if you buy whatever means necessary, if you have a Hulu account, you have no excuse to not watch this film right now. It is exceptional. I think it's, I think it's missing the advocate um, because a film like the fog, which is one that I've heard good things about having someone like Edgar Wright tweeting about it makes me go, man, that's gotta be on my list to see. Yeah, And the more people see this, the more people are going to talk about it. They'll tweet about it and it can get that cult following. And look, a bunch of Stephen King movies are about to come out. We're about to get it and the Dark Tower. Maybe this is the right time for something like this to resurface. We're also getting the Castle Rock like series interconnected. I think it's a television thing, right? You know what I'm talking about? I do not. They've done a teaser for it. Um, I, I believe it's a... I believe it's a television series where they're sort of interconnecting um, a lot of Stephen King things together into one universe. Oh, okay. I've vaguely heard about this. And that sounds like, I don't know if Stephen King has anything to do with this or not. It sounds like something that would irritate him. Having read a lot of his interviews that he wouldn't care <laughs> what for that. doesn't irritate him? But that especially, I mean, that irritates me, yeah. you know, going after the fact and trying to create a universe where there isn't one. Did you like the, the call out to uh, Stephen King in this movie? Which one? Um, the, the little jab, he outsells them all, even Stephen King. Oh, yeah. Speaking of he outsells them all, even Stephen King, uh, Sutter Crane or Kane? Kane. Kane. Sutter Kane was played by a guy whose name, I'm not sure I'm pronouncing correctly, Georgian Proch now? I've seen him in other things. Sure, man. <laughs> Let's just go with that. Also, <laughs> Jorgen, uh, I think is actually uh, what it is. Jorgen Proch now. So, see, I'm just a dumb oaky who can't pronounce things. However, one thing I can't pronounce is Charlton Heston. He was great, too. Yes! He was, he was so awesome. Across the board. And that was, that was a thing that was a serious relief coming off of Prince of Darkness, where mm-hmm. there were some creaky, a lot of creaky uh, performances. Pretty much all the performances in this are great. I, I thought Julie Carmen as uh, Linda Stiles was yeah. especially good. I, I thought she she committed to the role, and even when it was just a mask of her head on an upside down uh, walking thing, uh, yeah. it, she still did a great job. Yeah, well, just go with it. She has a sort of tough role as well because she's shifting in. I mean, we're in spoilers, so I'll just you know, as as Sutter Kane is sort of rewriting um, the film itself. She is shifting in exactly who she is because he ultimately writes her out of the story uh, to get to his ultimate goal of getting Trent out of the realm with the manuscript. So there's there's something a little delicate there where you have to get across that she's not the exact same character that we saw five minutes ago. And I think she, for the most part, does that. Okay, Chris kind of you know, dipped his toe in this water. So since we're already in spoiler sections, let's just ask the million dollar question. What the hell was going on? I actually have a, another question to tack onto that. And that's, as I was watching through this, I, I realized maybe there's two ways that you could approach this. Obviously the most obvious is the metacinematic play with relationships between the author and the story and the characters. Mm-hmm. And then, and you throw in that like just Lovecraft love and all that. But then there's also, if you kind of look at the way that it's structured, you could also read this as a Dr. Caligari unreliable narrator. That narrator being Sam Neill? Being Sam Neill, because, like, I mean, the opening of this movie directly mirrors the cabinet of Dr. Caligari. We don't get the definitive conclusion where it comes out and it says, oh, this is all in the head of a madman, because you already kind of know that he's a madman. Mm -hmm. But I think the argument could be made because it is – um, sort of loose and, and it goes so many directions and there's not clear answers. I, I think it could just as easily be that. Is that the more interesting thing? I don't know. Um, I, I do like the connection to Calgary though. 
is he a madman or is that the way the world ends? And because that movie exists in our world as well, also a statement on, like you said, the meta cinematic aspect. But I, I just love this idea of the world ending and we see the movie adaptation and it is the movie we have been watching. And how happy is Sam Neill as he's watching it all? Uh, he he, well, he broke. I don't think he would. I don't, well, do you no think one's he was happier happy? than a crazier person. No one's cr- happier than a crazy. But he's person. Like, was he happy because he, he figured out he wasn't crazy, or was he happy because he figured out he was written by Sutter Kane and Sutter Kane wrote him to be laughing? Or is this just his own narrative, and this is ultimately what he wanted? There's a scene in the movie in which he. He being Sam Neill cuts up the covers and then uses the covers to form a map. Yes, that's that mm-hmm. looks uh, that looks like New England, and I think that that's a visual metaphor for what this movie is, which is it's a bunch of interconnected ideas. So there, I don't think there is a right answer about what is going on, because you could just as easily say that one story element of this is that the author Sutter Kane had this ability to unleash the Elder Ones via his... And so his or, books are essentially a, an incantation to release the, the Elder Ones. I would actually argue that the Elder Ones use Sutter Kane as the vessel for... Right, yeah. The, yeah. Like, it's it's not so much that he's unleashing them as they are using him to make it into our right, realm. Right, so, kind of so it's kind of a Hellraiser thing in that regard. Yeah. Now, guys, what if the Elder Ones are using John Carpenter to make movies to unleash themselves into our realm? I don't think there's any if about it. That is clearly what's going on. This conversation isn't happening right now. This exists in one of our heads. Well, it does exist in John Trent's head, for sure. This conversation He's very happy. right now. He's very happy. You know, no one saw this movie. He's super happy that we're talking about it. And right actually, now. I love it. I was just getting ready to say, I love it. You mentioned the popcorn, that the world's ending, and he goes to the trouble of getting a, bi- <laughs> I, I a about, box of popcorn. That. Did he make his own popcorn? <laughs> he just goes well, to the trouble of, well, I'm at a movie. I'll get some popcorn. Well, also, that's, that's what I was going to say. Is that the marker saying? that it's not real and that he's crazy because he was able to get popcorn no he could have made it they still had the popcorn there it's not like the cthulhu monsters came in and you know took the took the popcorn away from the theater it was still there what i like is that there's the radio is saying there's only a few people who aren't psychopaths at this point that aren't schizophrenics but there still is a projectionist and someone taking the ticket running the movie and serving popcorn that theater is the last bastion of of mental wellness on earth except that this movie could have just even if he's a he's not an unreliable narrator he's a reliable narrator but this movie's taking place in trent's mind and he's gone batshit crazy Mm -hmm. so you know whatever 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 happens happens the answer to all these questions is really yes no yeah (laughs) Um, yeah it's just it's like the covers the covers are all connected it's a bunch of horror movies in one uh i i really really like i think i think the poster for this movie is pretty nice um it it shows you little bits of the it's the the book opening with the that orthodox church mm-hmm. and sam neil screaming but the poster that is inside the movie of the movie is incredible yes very yeah very I, I was wondering paperback. is that the the poster that was released in real life for the movie it is it is not and it should be and mondo so new line just didn't go through with it is my guess from what i understand it was the uh italian distributors that made the poster that was used Hmm. so new line just didn't care yeah Hmm. that's what it was i'm I'm sure john carpenter was like and this will be the poster that they'll actually see outside the theater new line was like nah this is a flop. Maybe so, but I would like if if that poster was available, I would hang it on my wall. Even Do you if you want it says the one with starring, John Trent on it, well, that that's what I was gonna say. Even if it says starring John Trent instead of Sam Neill, that might actually be the way to do it. See, not to be that guy, but 
I would be a little bit skeptical about putting anything from this movie, even buying the movie. Because it's going to, it's gonna, the wall is the walls are going to just tear apart and it's going I, to open up I, a vortex. I don't know. I do not know. Uh, but I don't want to invite that shit. Speaking speaking of that uh, Orthodox Church uh, that, as you called it, uh, Satanic Temple, as I would yeah. call it. Um, Man, Linda did not heed that that warning at all on the front door. <laughs> Barred straight through the anybody who enters this is going to be damned message. Well, but that's also because she is forced to by Sutter Kane because he writes her to because it is, after all, a horror story. Uh, speaking of, I love the delivery of her line when she's trying to kiss him and she's like, he's making me do it. It's what the reader wants uh, yeah. to see. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that was one of the most cinematic part or meta cinematic parts that I was ex- excited about. Did you guys notice in the in the credits at the very end? It's like right after the uh, uh, SPCA or I guess they shot it in Toronto. So whatever the Toronto, you know, like no animals were harmed. There was a little thing right after that that said human interaction was monitored by the Interplanetary Psychiatric Association. The body count was high. The casualties were heavy. Yeah, oh. I noticed that. I also noticed that a kid in this was Hayden Christensen. Yes, and then, the little boy on really? the, on the paper yeah. boy on the bike. Yeah, and then um, the guy who died in the bar, I can't remember the actor's name, but the guy who died in the bar was Vigo the Carpathian from Ghostbusters 2. I think that <laughs> is his name. I think his name yeah, is yeah, Vigo yeah, yeah. the Carpathian. That's the actor's name. That's, I couldn't place where I knew him from. Yes. Yeah, so oh, Vigo no, I can and, always place him a half a second after he's in Oh, yeah, I got that screen. immediately. It was uh, So Vigo and Vader are in this movie just adding to the weirdness. And actually, that's kind of the funny thing about Hayden Christensen being in it, because it's not like we knew who's, it's not like John Carpenter knew he's going to be Darth Vader, so it's almost like as the world turns, it's it's time is time is relative. So and, maybe and, John maybe John Carpenter was in some very weird headspace in the the writer of this. I'd be curious what happened to the writer, like if he's still among the living. Um, he's he hasn't written much. He's produced more. Um, I off the top of my head, I, I can't tell you more than that. I, I yeah, heard he went off the grid, and he's uh nobody can find him right now. No, that's exactly. That would not surprise me at all if that's what's going on. And, I actually, when I saw the name of the writer, I just assumed it was another John Carpenter pseudonym, just to to play in this whole thing. Oh, we can't find him. Actually, yeah, that, and I would also like the idea of him saying that he just found this story somewhere, like it was just buried somewhere, and he found I, it, and then found I, it. I, I was just made to turn in the reels. There needs to be, even though Stranger Things is kind of taking up this mantle, but there really needs to be a resurgence of Lovecraftian horror filmmaking. Very blatant. Look, I could see him just making a, a 12 episode in the Mouth of Madness series for Netflix. He's he's actually making, he's adapting a horror comic book that he's been making into a television series. Uh, I think for the sci-fi channel. This news just broke like a month ago. Okay. Do do we know if it's going to have practical effects as opposed to special effects? I, I don't know. I don't mm. think there's there's much. He, he just had a little post on his Facebook page and then um, some of the, you know, kind of horror outlets picked it up um but i'm i'm intrigued i'm maybe a little uh cautiously approaching this and we'll we'll see what happens we'll see if it actually reaches um the light of day as well because you know sometimes these things start rolling and then and then fall off tracks but it's uh it's intriguing nonetheless all right did you guys have a favorite practical effect um it for me it's probably a tie between the door i just really love that door and then baby groot on the back of sutter cane um, Baby like, yeah like like when he when he turns and you kind of see the the thing coming out of him that was a pretty good uh because it's another one of those where one of the things i love about the practical effects in in carpenter's movies is it gets to the level of like i'm not entirely sure how they were able to get mm-hmm. the articulation that they get 
with the free range that they have. Mm-hmm. Um, it was it was pretty impressive. Hunter, did you have one? I feel like the correct answer is Happy Gilmore's grandma turning that mutant monster. <laughs> Put yourself in Sam Neill's shoes, guys. Is he just went? He just he's just going to a New England town. It's just this little unassuming town, you know. And things getting a little bizarre. He asks Happy Gilmore's grandma, "Hey, are you feeling all right?" And she says, "I'm a little tired." And then the next time he sees her, he goes down into a basement, and she's a mutant flipping monster, like eating her husband or something. And like it that. is the very it, first thing he. Sees sees that is not just creepy but but like what in yeah in her defense he knew it was coming he had already read about it had he read the story he hadn't read about yeah, because it. no because he says she chopped up her husband in the basement oh she he turned knew a, that. she turned him into coleslaw he knew that but he didn't know that she was a tentacle monster she was gonna he did. Yeah. or did she or did he i i think he did also fun little fact um the you know the kids ate the leg off of the dog like first you see the dog mm. and then you see the kids like all their faces all bloody and everything. And you see a three legged dog, two different dogs. No dogs were harmed. They didn't cut a leg off a dog just in case you were worried. They or, did, so, however, or so they said they did, however, harm Happy Gilmore's grandmother. That was not a that, <laughs> and all those children. That was a, that was her. OK, Jake, you clearly have an answer of your favorite uh, effect. I, I do have a favorite and it's. It's pretty simple, but it's that cop in the alleyway whose face was so messed up, beating a kid. Um, when he shows back up on the couch next to to Sam Neill, um, not only did I think they did a great job on the makeup, but I I loved that my girlfriend sitting next to me screamed, made us pause the movie, and left. She said, "I had enough. <laughs> That's it. I'm done." And even, and left. Even by John Carpenter standards, that was pretty grotesque. Like that that belonged in something more like a Cronenberg film. I think not. Not to say that that moment or that didn't the well just the the effect of that that cop. Like it 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 surprised me at how disgusting it was. Like delighted me, but yeah. Um, but a 23 year old movie can still make someone who can watch modern stuff go. No, I'm done. I'm checking out of it. That's it for me. Well, and I think that's in-camera direction, and likewise, let's just face it, practical effects are scarier than digital effects. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And Hunter, if you would have ever listened to our uh, The Thing conversation, <laughs> you would know we, we had a whole a whole tangent on that. I was just seeing if you guys remembered. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so guys, we've talked about how this might be John Carpenter's last masterpiece. It's been 23 years since this was made. Let's throw out the idea here. Do we think that In the Mouth of Madness drove him insane? And he uh, just can't do anything. After no, I, I think I think it just depends on your point of view. Or did it drive us insane? And he's I still mean, the sane one. I think judging by the experience with it, 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 it may have the production of it may have driven him a little insane or at the very least uh, a little irritated. Yeah, radically. Although, irritated. although if you've listened to uh, Lost Themes Part One and Two, you could definitely argue that he is totally sane and, and still kicking at uh, some stuff that he's he's still very good at. So, ladies and gentlemen, now we've concluded our review. One thing that we like to do on The Carpenter Shop is do a tournament-style last-man-standing death match between the top characters in the films we've already reviewed versus the top character in the latest film. So, for example, we've previously reviewed the other two pictures in the Apocalypse trilogy, The Thane and Prince of Darkness, and pitted R.J. McCready from The Thane against 
Victor wants Professor Howard Barak from Prince of Darkness. And as you can probably imagine, that uh, Kurt Russell just mopped the floor. It was a with, uh, Yeah, with Professor Wan there. So now I think we're going to pit R.J. McCready against, I, I'm pretty sure we can all agree, Sam Neill's John Trent, John yeah. Trent as the main character, unless we want to put Happy Gilmore's grandma as, <laughs> as mean, our... Did you guys not watch the movie Sutter Kane as the main character, right? Right? <laughs> here's the here's the thing is we've already discussed in previous episodes that one way or the other Kurt Russell is going to advance in this because he's so cool in so many movies. Yeah, not not so, because we're stacking the deck, yeah, just because let's be honest. So I kind of feel like this might be the time to throw out an out there one and then the out there one maybe beats McCready. Since McCready is probably he's not Snake Plissken and he's not uh Jack Burton, he would probably be lower tier Kurt John Carpenter, Kurt Russ. Uh before you go too far, Hunter, I would like to submit in McCready's defense a piece of evidence, uh that giant hat. Well, I mean, you we can I mean, this is up for debate. Here's here here's a couple things, guys. One, Hunter, I'm not getting on board with your collusion here. No. Two, no, it's, Jake, this is this is not a courtroom. This is a back alley brawl. Uh I well, he's wearing the hat during the brawl, Chris. Okay. Here's the, here's the thing. If it's John Trent, I liked Sam Neill in it, but if it's John Trent, it's going to be McCready, right? Okay, but if so it's Happy Gilmore's grandma, then <laughs> she could I, potentially advance. I actually have more questions if it's Happy Gilmore's grandma than I do with John Trent. And I, I agree. Like, John Trent, he's he's all well and good. He's I like that he's a cool little detective guy, um, has a little bit of, of noir flair to him, but he's going nowhere against J.R. McCready. No. What form is Happy Gilmore's grandmother in? Monster form. Monster form okay her ultimate form <laughs> her final form <laughs> uh yeah uh happy gilmore grandma neo okay um that wow that's a that's a good callback <laughs> to, to way back on, on the more starts midnight um i am going to still go with jr mccready because he is pretty brilliant at killing crazy monsters okay i'm going to go with Happy Gilmore's grandma, Neo. Jake, you are the tiebreaker. It's R.J. McCready. He has a flamethrower. Okay. He does have a flamethrower, and he has Molotov cocktails that may be filled with with J&B, or they might be filled with gasoline. You don't know. And he's got that giant hat. All right. I tried. I tried. tried. R.J. McCready Uh, advances. A valiant valiant effort, but yeah, it's got to be McCready, man. So we just finished the film. We're going to throw this to the Cult of Carpenter as well, but we're going to start with the Cult of Carpenter here in our presence today. How do we rank this film? Is it a Carpenter classic? Is it a deep dive, which is only for people who are really into John Carpenter? Or is it just for Johnny's Mommy, which is exclusively a film that only his mom should watch because she's the only one who'll enjoy it? Well, I have one question before I answer, and that is, are we sane or insane? Both. Okay, yes, well, if, I yes. mean, obviously, if I'm insane, then it's just for Johnny's mommy. But no, this movie is definitely a Carpenter classic. This is, you see this movie, guys, by any means necessary, see this movie. Break in through a storefront window with an axe if you have to, to see this movie. Break into his home, steal Gorgo versus Godzilla, <laughs> and steal this if you if you have to. Just just, just watch it on, on Hulu. Good Lord, <laughs> Carpenter classic. Just turn the podcast off, go watch it. You know, guys, before, before we started this, I would have said deep dive. But you guys have put up a, a valiant argument. I'm not sure I'm ready to go to Carpenter Classic. So if there was some place in between deep dive and classic, that's where I am. Well, there's no letters. There's no letters between C and D. That's true. But since I'm insane, I'm going to invent a new letter in between C and D. And so that's where I put this film. <laughs> so since we just concluded the Apocalypse trilogy, why is this a trilogy? I mean, I think it's pretty self-evident. It's it's the fact that all of these movies end in absolutely no one gets out alive. Even, I mean, even the thing which seems pretty ambiguous, if you really think about it, like 
the world is probably going back to Wilford Brimley's uh, little computer skills. I can't remember exactly how long it says it'll take how many hours it'll take for the entire world world to be filled. But I think the entire world is going to be uh, eaten up by that that parasite. Okay, so, so you, okay, I, I think yeah, that okay. this is an apocalypse trilogy speaks to a couple things in these movies. One, in the thing that the world ends up ending. Two, in Prince of Darkness. The that, world ends up ending. That, yeah, in 1999, when that video happens, the world ends up ending. And in this one, maybe John Trent's not crazy and the world ends up ending. It is an I mean, apocalypse trilogy. And, and clearly that I get and I guess that's I, I don't I don't necessarily want to go with that answer because I like I like this being a little more open to interpretation. But yeah, like there there's definitely an interpretation here where the world has ended and only apparently a few people haven't been haven't gone totally insane yet. And it's, you know, the uh the elder ones, is that what they're called? In Lovecraft art, they're called old ones. The old ones. They're elder ones. The the old ones have made their way into our realm of existence and they are messing stuff up i think maybe the 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 trilogy should have a question mark in there so it should be the apocalypse trilogy Long-time listeners of War Starts at Midnight know that we like to conclude reviews with a beer recommendation, and we're carrying that tradition over to the carpenter shop. So, Chris, given that this movie is batshit insane, are you even going to recommend a beer? Are you going to recommend, like, a brand of milk or something? (laughs) You know, if I was going to break away from my Summer of Sours, uh, which is nearing an end here, this would probably be the place to do it. But I'm I'm holding fast. We're still in August. So uh, I've got something to pair with In the Mouth of Madness that you've really got to try. You might not like it, much like In the Mouth of Madness, but you have to try it. And that is the Wild Sour Series Flanders Red from Distill Brewing in Normal, Illinois. Normal, Illinois. Sounds crazy. Um, This is coming in at 6.1 ABV, so much like uh, the last beer I recommended on Carpenter Shop. For a sour, pretty high because it's not a Goza. And a 15 IBU, so not much bitterness in this. But... Um, it is a shock to the palate. Uh, it can be described as an acidic sour ale, and that is no joke. This beer packs all the puckery goodness you could possibly desire, and maybe a little bit more, depending on your uh, preference. First, it hits your palate with a strong cherry tart that just might make you think some mad scientist has weaponized warhead candy into a liquid form. Uh, but then it gets really nice as the tart begins to dissipate, uh, and it leads into a mix of sort of a citrusy zest and a nice multi backbone. Uh, and then finally it finishes pretty clean. And then the sudden absence of sour actually, uh, at least to my palate, um, makes it kind of this nice, sweet, lingering, um, uh, flavor in the mouth. It's almost like the absence of anything sweet followed by a quick, uh, dissolve of all all the bitterness or not the bitterness, but the sourness uh, creates a, a sweetness void that 
you know, it's it's almost phantom sweetness. It's some um, sort of madness that you put in your mouth. It's it's some sort of madness. It's, it's thank you, thank you for making that joke. Because I was going to say, do you drink this in the mouth of madness? You 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 put it directly in the mouth of madness is how I would recommend drinking this. Uh, it is certainly not for everyone, much like in the mouth of madness, as I said. But I would recommend you try it nonetheless. If you see this movie and you need to see this movie because this movie is a masterpiece. That is the Wild Sour Series Flanders Red from Distill Brewing Company. Will it drive you crazy? Um, I don't know if it'll drive you crazy. It might, like uh, Jake's girlfriend, drive you off the couch and say, I don't want that beer. Fair enough. Well, In the Mouth of Madness is currently streaming on Hulu and available to rent from all impeccable purveyors of motion pictures. Or you can also break into John Carpenter's home and steal it from his DVD collection. But while you're there. <laughs> and while you're there, of course, get Gorgo vs. Godzilla. If you've seen In the Mouth of Madness or It Mom, hit up our <sighs> assistant Henry Swanson at Porkchop express at carpentercast.com and he'll relay the message to us or if email isn't your thing we would still love to hear from you ring the red phone and leave us a voicemail at 484-424-6362 that's 484-4cinema stick around we'll be back after the break with my recap of week 11 in the midnight warrior fantasy movie league summer season time for the Midnight Warrior Fantasy Movie League recap. Each week, Chris and I compete with you, the listeners, in a fantasy sports-style game to best spend a thousand imaginary bucks to fill a virtual eight-screen cineplex with real-world movies where the weekend box office determines the winner. If you aren't already playing along, it's never too late to join. Visit wsampod.com slash league to sign up and get all the details. Let's dive into our recap of week 11 of our summer season. First, you may be wondering how people in our league are able to consistently perform well week after week. If you go to analyzer.fmlnerd.com, you can find a bunch of tools to help you set your lineup, but none are as valuable as the lineup calculator. This tool allows you to put in what you think the earnings of the films will be and see what lineup combinations that results in. I use this each and every week, and it keeps me from making really stupid lineup decisions. Well, except for this week. I was on vacation in beautiful Gatlinburg, Tennessee, and when Friday morning rolled around, I found myself checking the Thursday preview numbers from, and this is not a joke, the line for the Tennessee Tornado roller coaster in Dollywood. Uh, Side note, this is a super underrated theme park. Uh, In any case, I had to play with my gut on the lineup, and I landed on two screens of Annabelle Creation, three screens of The Glass Castle, and three screens of Wonder Woman. From my phone, this looked like a solid choice. 
but I left an obvious play on the table. I actually had enough money to swap in War for the Planet of the Apes for the last screen of Wonder Woman. This was almost certainly going to earn more money than Wonder Woman, as long as she didn't take the $2 million Best Picture bonus. And if she did earn the bonus, this lineup was totally busted anyway. This is the exact scenario that the lineup calculator was made to show you. If I had just made that one swap, I would have earned myself the $5 million bonus and been one of the 281 perfect Cineplexes last week. I may not have been so lucky, but an anonymous listener with Cineplex named Chase Andrew Beasley Cineplex did earn this bonus, so congratulations to whoever that may be. Uh, Chris, how bad did you fail on purpose last week? Jake, I did great last week. And by great, I of course mean terrible. Um, As we go over... Every time we do these recaps right now, I am trying to use all of my bucks and get the worst Cineplex possible. And I ended up in 15th out of 16, uh, which is, which is really good. And the person in 16th forgot to set a lineup. That's great. That's really awful and good. And and I only, and I only beat him by like (laughs) 10,000 or I'm sorry, 10 million, 10 million. (laughs) The, The thing I'm most impressed with uh chris is that you're able to do this lineup with no tools online like to set a good lineup i I check four or five different threads on the chatter i use the analyzer i look at box office mojo and all these other places who predict how much money these movies are going to make you just kind of got to go on gut based on what you can make fill ten fill a thousand dollars yeah it's that it's that constraint is probably the hardest part because sometimes there's things where i'm like oh i know that's really gonna bomb but i can't find a way to use all of my fml bucks um with a particular film this past week I really, really doubled down on The Nut Job 2, which is apparently a sequel to a movie that I'd never heard of. And Mm -hmm. I used five of those. And boy, did it bomb. Yeah, I read an article about how bad movies are bombing this year, and it listed that. And it also listed uh, a film we had Drew review one time, which was Monster Trucks. I was like, Monster Trucks couldn't have been that big of a bomb. It was like a $35 million budget Nickelodeon movie. Yeah. No, it was a $125 million budget. What? $125 million. It made 33 or something at the bottom. $125 million. Did you did you double check this? I double checked it. Are you sure this isn't fake news? <laughs> Look, anything could be fake news this week. You you could have made like a dozen or maybe even a baker's dozen. Everybody wants sums. <laughs> like that, wait, that would, give, everybody would really need to want some for that to work, though. Yeah, but what I'm saying is like with that with that budget, like why don't why don't you just spread it out between you know like give a little bit to Soderbergh, give a little bit to uh, Linklater, like. Spread out, spread out that cache. Look, we're about two years from that happening. When it, when it, when we really start hitting bomb after bomb after bomb, and you uh, open I'm, up your little, your little boutique studio. Oh, I can't wait! I can't wait. Uh, but in the meantime, you want to run down the new releases for this week? Sure, let's do it. We all love Ryan Reynolds and Samuel L. Jackson, but is Hitman's Bodyguard the summer buddy flick that crowds have been waiting for, or are they all just going to stay home and watch the Nice Guys yet again this weekend? If not, maybe they want to see Steven Soderbergh's Logan Lucky. Now, I'm not sure if everybody will want to see Ocean's Eleven meets the Lady Killers, but this was by far the most entertaining trailer I've seen in a while. But will this 184 buck movie end up on enough screens to be FML relevant? That's really the question. And finally, Heller Highwater's scribe Taylor Sheridan directs Wind River, in which Hawkeye and the Scarlet Witch team up to solve a murder mystery on a remote Indian reservation. Are audiences finally ready to switch gears from summer popcorn fare to intense ice-cold drama? 
Or will they shy away and assume it's just Jeremy Renner doing his poor man's Leonardo DiCaprio in a poor man's The Revenant? <laughs> oh, man, this is this this is kind of a tough week. I'm partial to playing Logan Lucky. Did you see this trailer? I did see this trailer, and this is why I'm staying away from Logan Lucky, because I can't trust that it's not priced too high. I know. So here's the thing. I, I've seen movies lately, and I haven't seen the trailer for this one yet. Uh, the first time I saw it was when I pulled it up on YouTube to write write the description. But okay, I have a question for you, actually, Jake. Okay. Does, because you are from Louisiana, so you have more of an awareness of the South, um, does it at all come on? And I know Soderbergh is from, I think he's from Baton Rouge, actually. Uh, he at least went to school here for a while. Yeah, no, I think he grew up there. Um, but do all the Southern accents seem, How? What? what's your take on, on this? Like, oh, Chris, it depends on what part of the South they're in. You might just be too far away, but there's different accents all over. No, no, no. I understand that. I guess I was more like, when I saw the trailer, I was like, this looks funny, but are they making fun of them or are they being like, I guess that that's my thing is I like, I'm afraid a little bit that it's just going to be like, Oh, look at these, look at these dumb country boys. And I don't want to see that, but I do want to see Soderbergh's return to the movies. So I'm, yeah, no, I'm, I'm definitely going to see this. Look, I, I'm, I'm excited. Cause you know, he's, he's always been interesting to me. And also this looks like a, like a, off-brand Coen Brothers movie a little bit. Like, it doesn't look like it, but it seems like that sort of everything's going to go wrong heist type thing. Yeah, no, it, it definitely has a bit of that, like, dumb people after money thing, which is a very Coen Brothers trope. But, um, I mean, and, and the cast is, the cast looks great. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, everything about it, I am I am in favor of. I just don't know what the, like, what the turnout is going to be for like white trash Daniel Craig, I guess. Look, I'm I'm with you. He looks every, great. Every year we get a couple movies that look really good. We end up really liking them, but they just don't make any you know noise at the box office. Yeah, and this might be one that in three weeks the word of mouth's pretty good. People want to keep seeing it, or this could do more like the Big Sick did and catch something straight out the gate. I just. The I don't know who is this target for city folk who want to laugh at country folk? Is this at country folk who want to root for like I don't know? Or is it going to bring the country together? I, the real question is how many times am I gonna say folk when I talk about it? <laughs> that's the that's the real. <laughs> okay, let's move on. Let's talk about uh, Hitman's Bodyguard. What do you what do you think of this? It looks like it's trying really hard. I I had to sit through this trailer more times than I can count in the Whitney Houston song and all that other stuff. And it just, it never has looked like something I'm going to be interested in. But is a crowd like, see, I, I saw it a lot too. And the crowd generally responded fairly well to it, even though like, I think they played the same trailer every time mm -hmm. I saw it. And it's, I'm pretty sure every single joke is packed into that trailer. I, look, I, I apparently don't know anything about movies because a bunch of people went and saw Kidnap. That's so true. That's don't true. don't listen to what I think from watching a trailer on a movie. Uh, but this one I've seen a bunch, so I, I assume it's going to have some high awareness, so people may get out to see it. But it's the highest priced movie this week. You got to think something being carried over from last week is going to have more of an you know impact. Well, that's and that's sort of my my question of the week is is Annabelle, which should pretty well last week um i mean very well considering what was around it 
Uh, that's not too much cheaper than Hitman's Bodyguard. Which one's going to? Is is Annabelle really just going to perform that well, or it, are people ready to turn out for this big dumb buddy comedy? I I don't I don't know. And does Logan Lucky coming out take some away from Hitman's Bodyguard? I don't know if it does. I don't know if it directly competes. It's going to be a tough week, and, and we're close to the end of the season, and really. You know, anything could happen still. Do you know what you're going to play this week? <sighs> no, I, I'm pretty sure I'm going to go for Luck, uh, L- Logan Lucky's if if the if the numbers work out and, and it's actually going to be on like even 2000 theaters. That would make me happy. Well, yeah. And they're actually they're not distributing through a big studio with this. So this is sort of a big experiment with uh, allowing the filmmakers to uh, you know, be more involved at, at every level. Um, so it'll, it'll be interesting. Like this Logan Lucky is actually interesting, not just from a, like Soderbergh's returning and it looks fun, but actually from a standpoint of the future of filmmaking, if this does well, this could actually open up doors for smaller, these mid budget movies, um, to get made and get wide distribution. So is he, is he self-financing? Like what exactly is happening? Um, he is not exactly self-financing, but they, from what I understand, I believe they did a lot of pre-sell, um, to theaters and then he's, uh, set up a a sort of distribution, um, network with, I, I forget who it is that, who sort of the major players are, but, um, a, a couple of folks and apparently like I, I heard him describing it in an interview and he was basically saying like everyone involved, they were working for uh scale. And as the movie comes out, they can actually like, he was saying they could like log into a bank account and see how the movie was doing and see what they were making off of it. Wow. Which sounds insane. Yeah. Um, but I mean, that's, that's also Soderbergh. Soderbergh's always sort of playing with the bleeding edge of, uh, of, you know, the, the industry as a whole. So, uh, no, I'm, I'm very interested to see like just how this film performs in general. Yeah. And he's, he's always seemed like a really sharp guy, like, oh, yeah. like a, like a smart one. So the, he may, he may be really onto something. We'll have to see, but you know, in FML land, somehow nut job eight screens is going to take perfect cineplex this week or something crazy (laughs) nut job job makes its resurgence in the uh, in the second week yeah just just an an eight eight nut job (laughs) that's uh you know i hadn't i hadn't considered that but i don't think that'll fill up my cineplex no Uh, it's gonna be tougher for you yeah, no, I I have one, and I don't think I'm going to find anything better. Um, so I'm I'm riding hard on Annabelle not carrying over terribly well. I mean, it's still it's the second highest uh, film. You know, it's above Logan Lucky, and it's in its second week. So I'm hoping it's priced too high because it performed so well last week. I got four of those, an Emoji Movie, and three Despicable Me threes. Oh, see, no, if I were you. I would be going three Hitman bodyguard because I don't think it's going to do well. Two nut job and then just fill out with Spider-Man and two Despicable Me three. Well, here's the other thing. It's the the bottom end. It's a little bit harder to hit that full thousand bucks because the bottom end isn't as forgiving. Yeah. Um, yeah. Despicable, Despicable Me three is 28 bucks. That's the cheapest thing we've got. We don't have any of these five, ten, eight buck 
movies to just fill in. Yeah, that 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 you're you're limited. You're definitely limited. Very limited. But if you're like the rest of us and you're actually trying to make a good lineup, uh, why don't you just catch my weekly recap and predictions each week on the War Starts at Midnight blog? And if you've got a hot take for the next Perfect Cineplex, hit us up on Facebook or Twitter at WSAM Pod. Hang in there, kid. We'll be right back with some really rad recommendations you won't want to miss. Well, folks, somehow we made it to the end of this episode, or did we? Or were we ever alive to begin with? To be determined. Uh, But that means that it is time for really rad recommendations before we go. Uh, Hunter, what do you have to recommend this week? Well, I'm always excited to see Lovecraftian homages, particularly whenever they're in media intended for children. (laughs) And so in this regard, I'm referencing Justice League Unlimited's two-part episode, The Terror Beyond, which you can find on Netflix. I'm not going to tell you a whole lot about it other than if you want to see Batman, Superman, and Wonder Woman battle a Cthulhu-like character, this is this is your jam. And then I'll also add to non-filmic media. Um, Chris, you mentioned that you only have kind of a surface relationship with H.P. Lovecraft, which might be best for your sanity. But if you do want to do a bit of a dive, or if you listeners have want a bit of a dive as well, I'd recommend getting H.P. Lovecraft's The Complete Works of H.P. Lovecraft's which is a part of the Library of Congress collection. That, that seems like a lot to I read. I thought you were going to tell me the one H.P. No, 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 Lovecraft no, 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 story no, no, I No, 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 no. Get the book. Get the book. At Library of Congress, Complete Works, and then read The Call of Cthulhu. If you only read one, read The Call of Cthulhu, and then his masterpieces in the Mountains of Madness. Right. If you, if, so if you dig Cthulhu and you want something a little bit meatier, go with Madness. And the, that's, that book is available on Amazon.com. And then what do we do with the rest of it? You know what? Try and figure out the you know story what? that you want to live in the most okay. and read those. Because since you're going to get transported in it one way or the other, you don't want to read something that you really don't want to be in. I, I do appreciate this recommendation because for me, Lovecraft is sort of like Doctor Who, where I just never know. Like, I'm intrigued, but I never know where I should start. Yeah, Doctor Who sucks. Don't worry about it. You're wrong about that, Hunter. Doctor <laughs> Who started season one of the reboot. It's fine. Um, I'm glad you <laughs> recommended- the hate mail. <laughs> Hunter, I'm glad you recommended a non-filmic recommendation because I'm going to do the same thing. I'm recommending Alan Wake, originally for Xbox 360, developed by Remedy Entertainment. This game is about seven years old now, but thematically it shares a lot with In the Mouth of Madness, 
but if it took place in a Twin Peaks type uh, scenario. So uh, you play as uh, um, author Alan Wake, who uh, takes a, a retreat out to the Pacific Northwest to get away and write for a while. And uh, he's he's attacked by these sort of Lovecraftian monsters as well, but uh, frequently they're shadow monsters, and he has to use a flashlight to burn that away before he can hurt them. I don't want to spoil too much about it, although... Uh, I don't know how many of you are actually going to go and buy a seven-year-old game and play it, but you really should because the story in this one is is top-notch. And if you liked In the Mouth of Madness, you're definitely going to like Alan Wake. I don't play video games. Games are stupid. The, what's funny is there could be 15 sequels to this. I don't know because I don't really play them anymore. This is probably the last one that I played end-to-end. That's not Civilization. So, Jacob, you mentioned a video game, but then you also mentioned board games in our review so do you have any board games that are particularly love crafting if you're just going to grasp on one well the most common one uh that people would say is probably something like arkham horror or eldritch horror but i'm going to go with one that i enjoyed a lot more called mythos tales and in this game there's a map that you put on the table and there's a book that you read through and it gives you a scenario and you're an investigator in arkham trying to figure out what happened you can go anywhere on the map And as you go, you count how many steps it takes, because that's like a morning, evening, or night, to try and solve this mystery. And whenever you feel like it's solved, you get to go to the end of the chapter. You have to answer all the questions to show you know what actually happened, where, and who did it. So you're sort of playing as John Trent, investigating a Cthulhu-type event. Maybe not at that scale, uh, but along with your uh, co-investigators at the table. That is my favorite Cthulhu game or uh, that sounds great yeah it's really fun it's really really fun and I I know you can find it on uh, Amazon or wherever you find board games that sounds badass but not nearly as badass as the fact that there is a new board game coming out this fall called tell me if you've heard of this before Big Trouble in Little China yes this is the second Big Trouble in Little China board game though correct Jake Um, I played the Big Trouble in Little uh, Legacy Big Trouble in Little China at uh, Gen Con last fall uh, by Upper Deck and it was it was really, really fun. You actually replay scenes from the movie. It's 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 a good game, too. But I, I prefer Mythos Tales. So something to look forward to. All right, Chris, what do you have? Well, I was thinking about recommending a film from 2002 that has some connections to this movie. But I think if you haven't seen that film, you would be giving away too much. So I'm not going to, if you know what I'm referencing. It's a... Uh, It's a pretty good pick. But instead, I'm going to recommend a graphic novel series from an author and artist team uh, that I've recommended at least one or two of their works on the show before. I really like, but it has a direct connection here. It's called Fatal from Ed Brubaker, Sean Phillips, and then also has color, I think, halfway through Elizabeth Brightweiser comes on and uh, you can tell where she comes on because her color work is beautiful and really elevates this to another level. Um, The basic premise of this is uh, there's this woman named Josephine who is a femme fatale and she is seemingly immortal um, and has a bit of a checkered past as every femme fatale does. And it goes all sorts of places. It jumps around in time. Um, the, the art even jumps around in style. And uh, if you've ever wanted something that crosses paths between uh, Cthulhu and Nazis, this might be the series that you should check out. Um, it also has a bit of a detective story to it. Um, each volume, I believe there's five volumes, um, kind of works as its own. I mean, there it, it is one arc, but... They, one thing that I really appreciate is they take drastic changes. So there's one volume that's like 
all takes place, um, you know, back in like the middle ages. Um, it starts out in present day. It, like I said, it jumps around, um, really, a really fun read, maybe not for everyone. Uh, cause it does get, you know, if you, if you aren't into Lovecraft stuff, then I don't know why you sat through all of this. Um, but if you are, um, and you, and you haven't read it, definitely recommend it. It's available in five mass market paperback volumes or two deluxe hardcover editions, uh, that have every issue. Um, both of those made by image comics. You know, Chris, I've never wanted to see a cross between Cthulhu and Nazis, but I have wanted to see Cthulhu versus Godzilla versus Gorgo. <laughs> so hopefully that exists in John Carpenter's closet as well. Whenever we inevitably break into his home. Hey, he's making, uh, he's making comic books now. Maybe he'll make it happen there. Fingers crossed. I do like that uh, for our movie podcast, we're like, we got some recommendations for you. Here's a TV show, a book, a video game, a board game, and a graphic novel. Uh, enjoy. That's I'd just also, how it goes sometimes, man. I'd also like to add that it's not a TV show. It's a kid's cartoon show <laughs> I, recommended by yours truly. If you sit down and read them all, you can actually cut the cover, uh, the covers out, and it'll give you a map to where uh, we record the podcast. That is absolutely correct. Which, spoiler alert, is actually in Hobbs End. Which, spoiler alert, is where you can find Gorgo versus Godzilla. Dun, dun, dun. Well, I know what I'm doing after the show, which is searching Chris's home, which is coincidentally in Hobbs End. <laughs> well, that's a wrap for another episode of The Carpenter Shop. You can find show notes, archives, and a complete list of where to watch each film in the series at carpentercast.com. And be sure to check out our Mothership podcast at warstartsatmidnight.com. You can say hello to us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at WSAMPod. If you enjoy the show, tell your friends, tell your casual acquaintances, tell that cute person at the gym who's always listening to podcasts, or rate and subscribe to The Carpenter Shop on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to fine audio programming. It'll help us grow the cult of Carpenter, and it'll make you feel awesome. On the other hand, if you are the trolling type who is simply hate listening through these credits, go ahead and send our assistant, Henry Swanson, a great big heaping pile of anonymous internet vitriol at Express at carpentercast.com. Or if you're a narcissist who loves the sound of their own voice, leave us a voicemail and we just might play it on a future episode. Ring that bright red telephone at 484-424-6362. The Carpenter Shop theme song was produced by Philip K. Dickey and Dragon N3. Find them at dragonn3.com. The Spoiler Alert theme song is by The Taylor Machine. Check them out at facebook.com slash thetaylormachine. And shout out to Sports for the featured music on this week's show. Find more at sportsbandok.com. We'll be back next month with a review of John Carpenter's very first feature, well, his second feature after Gorgo vs. Godzilla, Dark Star, which you can currently find streaming on Fandor. And don't forget you can catch us in another fortnight on War Starts at Midnight, where we will be discussing Steven Soderbergh's return to the big screen with his film Logan Lucky, starring Channing Tatum, Adam Driver, and Daniel Craig. This Ocean's Eleven meets NASCAR heist comedy opens in theaters nationwide this week. So be sure to see it, and then catch our review in the More Starts at Midnight podcast feed. Thanks for listening, folks. Never, never, never throw chips at a driver. Hey, I don't know if this has been mentioned yet, but Jake hasn't seen Halloween. Good lord, Hunter! <laughs> <laughs>